long, boring story. Try to make it short. Mrs. had an opportunity to move into a family house that her brother just moved out of and be here to kind of oversee some renovations. Obviously, COVID and all that shit happening and being in a major city isn't great. Uh, So we're like, well, she didn't have to go to work and I'm not going to work right now. So let's go up here and check it out. So we're kind of sampling it for now. And so we don't really have anything like they moved out and left a few things here. We still have our apartment in LA. So we don't, that's hence the lawn chair inside. Which is kind of nice when like you're not burdened with this idea of design or anything. You're like, yeah, I'll sit in a lawn chair in the living room. Well, you, I mean, you made it sound like you're in the process of moving, but it just sounds, it sounds now, now that you describe it that way, just like it's an extended months long move. Well, now we're like, well, we don't need the apartment in LA and we can pay one third of what we were paying here as opposed to there. Maybe so I think we're going to go get our stuff from down there and bring it up here and kind of like let go of that apartment. And then eventually when things settle, start looking back down that way. So the Pacific Northwest is just temporary? Well, I guess. I don't know. You know, we're not we're not big plan makers. We're surfing whichever wave comes by, you know. You were in L.A. before? Yeah, I've been there for... 17 years. And was that work-related thing? Was that to be near entertainment? Yeah, I started comedy in 99 in Chicago. And then uh, I moved, yeah, moved in 2003 to LA to, you know, see if I could, uh, see if stand-up comedy was going to be a thing. Which I guess it is. (laughs) I guess it worked out. It's my job now, so I guess it worked out all right. Like, I'm in New York. A lot of people in my life who are in and around comedy have moved to Los Angeles. And it's always, like, moving to sort of take whatever the next step in comedy might be. It's interesting to hear that you moved to to Los Angeles for stand-up, because, like, Chicago's a pretty good stand-up city. It is, and, I mean, this was early 2000s, so you gotta think, like, stand-up comedy was not as popular as it is now. The internet isn't what it was there wasn't youtube there wasn't that kind of thing and so your only options were either move somewhere to get like new york or la to get some tv credits so then when you go on the road you can get better paying jobs because you have that resident or stay in chicago and just work your try and spiral your way upwards through the the road scene there which being an open mic guy and, and being, you know, I the, I started at the same time as people like, you know, like Matt Bronger and, and Kumail Nanjiani and Pete Holmes and all those people were in the scene. And uh, we weren't really doing the make a bar full of drunk strangers kind of comedy. Not like it was anything off the wall, but there was definitely like, who's partying tonight? All right, everybody go get laid kind of stuff. And uh, we weren't really doing that kind of, so anybody that would kind of go on a road gig and come back, they'd be like, it's horrible out there. <laughs> it's, you'd be playing literally like a converted barn in Wisconsin full of people just shit-faced and be like, talk about your dick, bro. Like, and some people who would go, very few people survived that and maintained a level of comedy credibility, in my opinion. Um, a lot of people would go and then, they started getting shaped by that. You know, well, you do. You don't want to go home being like, well, I told the jokes I wanted, but now I'm all sad because nobody liked it. So you start doing some of that party kind of comedy or kind of, you know, just get people on your side stuff. Because also, if you quit your day job to go on the road, 
Now that's your job. You need to be invited back to that place in the next month or whenever it might be that you can go, go back and make $75 because you need to add that night onto the next night that's six hours away, onto the next night that's five hours away. And you'd string along these runs. And these guys would come back and like, well, I was making $60 a night. It was a 12-hour drive between shows and a snowstorm through Minnesota. And I like, quick comedy, if that's what the life is. Like, I'd rather just stay in Chicago and try and be good at it and then move and try and get a TV credit. Like, if I'm going to be miserable, I'm going to be miserable with palm trees instead of miserable with snow, which is the decision of New York versus L.A. I knew more people in New York. There's more stage time in New York, but I'm like, man, I'm not. Dude, if I'm going to be bummed out, like, it's hard to be sad at the beach, you know? Did something have to happen in your career to make it feasible for you to do that? I mean, what what was sort of the, no, you're laughing. So <laughs> I'll let you take it the rest of the way. Well, the idea of what I thought was my, like, oh, well, this, this means I got to move. And then the time frame. I think I did comedy just as long in LA as I did in Chicago before anything took hold. When you were in Chicago, though, were, were you like, all right, I've, I've made it now. I'm at this, I'm at this point that I can absolutely move to the, across yeah, no, the country. No. No, no. <laughs> not at all. I just was, I was 26 years old and living with my parents still. And I was like, well, if I'm going to move out, I can either move out. I always commuted from the suburbs into the city for shows. I'm like, well, I can all, I can have this world of bills, you know, start paying rent and all these bills to move 45 minutes into the city. Or I can move to a city where I want it that has more opportunities for this thing I want to pursue. So I wasn't much of a catch, let's put it that way. I was a 26-year-old aspiring stand-up comedian warehouse worker living with his parents. I didn't have a lot to lose. And I won a, I won a Comedy Central contest, a, the regional Comedy Central contest. And in 2003, I'm like, well, that's it. I'm probably skyrocketing to the top. So they're like, well, we're, we're doing the finals in L.A. We'll fly out. I'm like, don't worry about it. I'm moving there. Get ready, baby. And I moved and came in last place of that contest <laughs> and uh fucked off for about another that was 2003 i think things didn't really start getting going maybe another yeah another four years or so so 26 uh, living with the parents doing stand up what was their impression of your career at the time i think they were just glad i had something going i th- i think just yeah not that it, it was just they were glad you weren't like Timothy McVeigh, basically, at the time. Which, I mean, I'm, there was a few of those guys in the in the comedy scene, too, that were, you know, so, you know, if, like, that, I was just talking to somebody else about this, about how if you like, maybe you resign yourself, like, I'm going to have this day job, whatever that job is. I mean, you know, I was doing warehouse stuff, and I, you know, where became warehouse manager, it was whatever, hourly rate, but, you know, okay, I, I have a job. And then I have this thing, I have comedy, which is a thing that I, I, I would like to be good at. It's a hobby I want to be good at. It wasn't fame. I just want to be good at this thing. Now, being good means being kind of being popular, getting people like you. But like, I think they were just happy that I found something that would give me some ambition because I didn't have much otherwise. I, had, I was playing music, but I was in a, in a band with my friends, and that was fun because they were my friends. Once I started to try to be in a band with like people that I just knew, I was like, oh, this is just a chore. I don't want to do this. You know? <laughs> but comedy, the successes and failures were all my doing. 
If I didn't go, to, if I was too lazy to go to a show, that's on me. I'm lazy tonight. I'm not doing it. But if I want, like, if I needed to get myself going, I didn't have to like motivate three other people and be like, hey, we should practice or we should book more shows. So I kind of like that element of it. But I think they were just happy I had something other than getting stoned and drunk every night, which was kind of the pace that I was on at that time. I was still doing that, but I was also just doing it at a comedy show. It sounds like you've mellowed out on that front a little bit. Is that safe to say? No? I mean, you're, you are drinking a tall boy right now. No, it's just a, it's a regular size Coors. Well, let's not let's not give the listeners. The it's wrong a it's a Coors Light too. In your in your defense, yeah, it's a Coors Light. It's a hot summer day over here on the on the on the West Coast. I, I watered the lawn. I'm wearing a mesh tank top. I'm uh, you know all right. I feel, uh, I feel like you're the one thing you're lacking is a kiddie pool for your feet. Man, I do. I am wearing camouflage Crocs. I'll show you those. So. And cut off shorts, but I'm, I'm already settled in my Adirondack chair inside, so I'm not going to stand up. These are hard to get out of, by the way. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think uh, there's only – it's you know what? It's kind of like if it's spiraled off into some sort of um, addiction, then it seems like, well, then your life would plummet and you either die or get help. Mine never spun off into that area, so I'm still just like a regular beer buzz and couple of tokes kind of guy. <laughs> it's, it's not as bad as it could be, but it's definitely not the greatest. But I, I feel pretty uh, relaxed most of the time, and I think that's good. All this talk about mental health nowadays, I feel pretty good. What's it like moving to a new city during a pandemic? I think, I mean, it's nice to have a little space around you. I mean, cause I've been in, in apartments for the last 17 years and then in my parents' house for the 26 years before that. So <laughs> to have uh, uh, me and the lady just kind of once in a while, just take turns just to be loud because we can, you know, what, what a rarity to be. I mean, you can be loud in an apartment and it makes you a jag off here. It's like, that's just real. When you move to a new place, I'm, I'm sure you've been to, to Portland, mm-hmm. you know, plenty of times for, for work, yeah. but you know, when you move to a new place, you want to go around and check out the sites and explore things. And you've kind of been shuttered inside. I think some of the benefits of having been like a touring comic for the last 10 years are that I've been to a a lot of major cities several times over. So there's no great mystery. And also having recently learned the definition of uh, an introvert being someone who's like, so not you don't hate people you just socially get exhausted people sap your energy that's not their fault that's like trying to you know especially in some senses like after comedy shows people are like all right this guy he likes to drink he's gonna come out and party i'm like no i can't have the kind of conversation that i'd like to have or you'd like to have after i already talked for an hour that night and did what i can i'm like i want to hide I love drinking in bars by myself just so I can eavesdrop on other people. You must have felt socially obligated to do that, though, especially when you're starting out. Yeah, and, someti- and sometimes it was fun because I guess this, this is where I realize I get more out. I don't, I don't see a therapist, and I, I feel like I, everybody would benefit from not just me seeing a therapist, but in the world seeing a therapist. And I, and I don't, and that's... Oh, amazing. I thought you meant everyone in the world would benefit from you seeing a therapist. Well, I mean, probably that also, but realizing that just doing interviews and talking on podcasts, I'll, I'll get to a point of like, Oh, like, like I'll have a breakthrough anyway. 
because I think some therapy is just about knowing what questions to ask. Why do that for one person when you can do it in front of hundreds or thousands of strangers? Yeah, if you can get a punchline on there, it's good. But I talking about, uh, you know, feeling obligated early on, it was fine because like maybe two or three people wanted to go and hang out. And I was, I don't think I'm at any kind of phenomenal level of fame, but it's more than it was. So it did feel more like you were going out with some friends after a show back years ago. Now it's not, now it's like, there's more expectation. It's like, you're still on the spot. I'm like, no, I already did the thing to be on the spot. And you graciously paid me money to see that. Now I don't, want to do that anymore I, I want to be alone in the hotel or or if i can go if i can find a bar where i can be alone and just watch other people interact that's i mean that's where i get the material from anyway is just eavesdropping <laughs> just watching the stuff around me earlier on when there wasn't any kind of level of notoriety or fame attached it was easier to go and hang out with people because it wasn't there was an expectation to be like funny all the time it's like ah, no i don't want to be funny you be funny i'm done i did my job tonight when you had this breakthrough or, or realization was it hard for you to reconcile the fact that you're somebody who can like get up on stage and talk to a room full of strangers or you know do a podcast or anything else but still be an introvert because like because traditionally when you tend to think of that you think of somebody who like just has no social skills whatsoever yeah, and I don't think that's the case for that. I think it's just, I mean, the comedy show, I know like people make the joke if somebody heckles, like this isn't a conversation. It's not, it's a dictatorship. I go up there, I give my speech. And if anybody, I just dislike anybody in the audience, I can have them removed from the building. That's that's a dictatorship. Harder but, to uh, do in a bar. It, yeah, Possible, yeah. but harder. Well, and like you, I want to be polite. And then there's this idea like, oh, if I'm a, it's, it's also people that are drunk. They've gotten drunk at the show and don't realize that that's just you at work. After the show, that's your, just your day at work. That's their night out. So whatever character you're putting forward on stage of like, yeah, I like to have fun and everything. I like to have fun on my time, on my terms. And people might not realize, not through any fault of their own, but don't realize that now after the show, I'm not on my terms anymore. This isn't what I can control. And you get somebody that's drunk that's coming up at you, you know, hey, man, don't buy you a shot. I'm like, I don't, I, I don't want to buy it. That's okay. Like, come on, man. You got nothing like, shit, are they bothered? Or, oh, boy, am I not the character that they thought I was? Like, that's why I don't want to be anything disingenuous on stage. Like, oh, man, look at me taking all these shots on stage. And then somebody offers one afterwards. Like, no, I talk about I. I talk about like, no, I am taking it easy and I'm not as drunk as I was all the time in my teens, 20s and most of my 30s. So hopefully that shows people that like, yeah, I'm not going to get a shot, but I might come out for like 10 minutes and be be grateful you were here. And Do you get a sense though that there is sort of a a disconnect from stage you and off stage you? Not really. It's just, I can be myself during the show because, because I'm not, because it's on my terms. Because then it does it does sound like it's like this brief hour. You know, you've been in a conversation, you've been on a roll, maybe making jokes, and then you, you realize the people like at your table at dinner or something, they're listening to you like, oh, I got them for five minutes. And you're like, this and this and this. And another thing, I'm sick of when this happens. And everybody's laughing and like, ah, that's funny. Like for five minutes, you got them, you know? That's what, this, that's what it feels like during stand-up just for an hour. 
And then after that, like when the show's over, it's kind of like, all right, oh, uh, sorry, I was being rude. What did you have to say? And then I just, all right, now you guys talk. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I said my piece. So I don't think it's a disconnect. I mean, it's a little weird when you're telling the same stories over and over again, which is why the shows, I have to make it so the shows, I don't do crowd work, but the parts move can move around or I'll move them around intentionally. So I have to stay more focused. You know, it's an old, I know it's taboo to even say his name, but the old Louis C.K. trick of uh, don't edit this to make it sound like it was something else. Taking like, once you get a closer, you put that, like you get a real strong closer for the set, you put it at the beginning and then make yourself come up with a new closer. So that way, every bit you wrote could be a closer. Everyone is strong enough to end the set. And for me, just moving the pieces around is just like, oh shit, I did this before the next thing instead of after it. So it just keeps me on my toes on stage. I see people that can deliver the same set every night, word for word. And I know that in their mind, they're thinking about what movie they're going to watch at the hotel afterwards. I assume you get the sense when you can pinpoint that, that it's somebody that maybe doesn't have the kind of, isn't delivering with maybe the passion that they could or should in front of the live audience. They're going through the paces. Yeah. Or people that can deliver it with the same passion. That's when you get into the world of theater and one person shows and acting. And that's, that's a different skill. That's a different skill set to give people the impression of true passion, anger, whatever emotion night after night. Anybody who's like a theatrical performer, like an act, like a stage actor, I don't know how you do that. I don't know how like Broadway, you go up night after night with the same intensity or whatever emotion you need. I got a theory. I think that's what some actors are such bores because they're so good at pretending to be these other things. Once it's time for them to be themselves, they don't know how to, that's like just neutral. They don't know how to be a neutral, you know? I mean, there does have to be a sense of that for you, right? I mean, you do, you know, knowing that like these jokes you're delivering are the first time somebody's hearing them. There there is something that you, that you have to bring to them. In spite of you having done them, you know, hundreds of times, you do have to muster up something to get on stage and, and retell them. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the weird pull back the curtain on stand-up is like, all right, let's, energy of a crowd's important. It is all the hokey things that MCs say, well, aren't they? the more energy you give us, the better the show is. And all that. But it is true, like you could tell, yeah, yeah, this side of the room's crazier than this side of the room. But it, it, there is like, a, oh, everybody here's excited to see the show? I don't want to let them down. I better give them a great show. They're you know, some people don't understand energy. Walk into a room where everybody just got in a fight. You didn't hear the fight. You don't know, like, argument or something. If you walk into a room, you can tell. Or if you walk into a room where somebody just told a great joke and everybody laughed, but then they quieted down, you could walk into that room, didn't know. But you'll know, like, oh, everybody in here is kind of, like, in a good mood. That's how it works with comedy shows. That's why they give you drinks. That's why it's all the little psychological things. That's why the room is dark, because people will laugh more if they don't think people can see them laughing. That's why a lot of places keep it colder than normal uh, because people want to laugh to warm up. If it's too hot, you're sluggish. There's all these little like Las Vegas trickeries, like how in Vegas they make the carpet confusing and there's no clocks. There's all shit like that. Pump oxygen in. Oh my God, do, doing a show like in the summertime and like right after the clocks change and you realize that the club had windows in it and now they can see daylight out because you're doing a 7 p.m. show and there's still so it's like, 
this sucks. Everybody feels weird sitting inside when it's the first day of summer and there's still sunlight out there. There's a reason why a lot of bars don't have windows. Yeah, you don't want to know you're pissing away your whole day out there. You said part of the reason why your your parents were supportive was because it was something that sort of, you know, I guess detracted from furthering substance abuse. This is obviously a problem a lot of comedians and musicians who go sober get into is like, is, is you're around it all the time. You don't, you don't find that like that being in a setting like every single night where alcohol is involved, that it makes it more difficult not to kind of go off the deep end with it? Yeah. I mean, think of any job that's better with, I shouldn't say better. Think about Aggressive Wall Street guys taking wild risks because they're on coke. All the writers on speed that knocked out a novel in a week and a half. Now, nobody talks about the... Lubricants. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, you, you learn in bars. You learn comedy in bars. You learn music in bars. Oh, shit, you got stage fright? Here, take this. And, and oh, everybody's a little silly. You let your guard down. That's That's inherent. I mean... I always was fascinated with the people that were like, Oh no, I don't drink. I, you know, I'm like, how are you in a bar? Especially, Oh man, back in the day where you could still smoke in Chicago too. So now I, at the time I, my worst is about two packs a day. And I don't, I haven't smoked in 13 years. I sneak one every like, is your voice naturally like that? Or is that from two packs a day? Uh, I mean, who knows? Who knows? I mean, if I could go back and switch it around, we'd see. But I mean, Combined with that and be drunken screaming every night on stage, yeah. But I think that, uh, and I already I did a podcast earlier too, so I already put my hour and change in a gab and <laughs> already put the miles on it. I like I never realized that like oh if you didn't smoke and were in a bar and like all your clothes smell like like how disgust. Even now I can tell. Like I remember landing at I think it was the Memphis airport. And as soon as I got off the plane, I was like, oh, man. And it's like, because there's a bar at the time, there's a bar in the airport that you could smoke at. And I could smell it right away. And to think about being a non-smoker and just having to deal with that every night. I remember going home from shows as a, like a, as a teenager because it was still legal in California at the time. And just like my pillow smelling like cigarette smoke. Every, everything. And then, and so for someone who... My, my hats off to the people who didn't drink or smoke and still sat in a bar at an open mic where it was a lottery draw. And they're like, oh, well, here's your number. You're up in two hours and toughed it out for those two hours. Kudos to them. Me, I was like, two hours? I'm going to be pretty drunk by the time I get up there. <laughs> Do you find that like that, that it did enhance your sets to some, to some degree? Or at least it, was there sort of like a, was there an ideal number for you? No, that, yeah, I never found that window. Uh, for me, I realized, you know, it's, it's, are people laughing at the jokes or are people laughing at a drunk person? And I did not make that dis- discrepancy. I did not discern that for a long time. For a long time, I was a drunk. I had some good jokes, but people were watching a drunk and laughing at a drunk. And I may have gotten material out of that. I may have gotten some mileage out of that. It wasn't nearly as much mileage I would have gotten out of if I had been doing comedy. Say, say, have the third beer after the set or have the second beer after the set. Were you aware of that while it was happening or is this a realization you came to later? Well, no, I, I would like to think if I was aware of it while it was happening, I would have changed my ways because I would have gotten my career started a lot sooner. But, and also... 
I'm kind of glad that it didn't get started sooner because I think, I mean, things didn't really kick off for me. Last 10 years, I think, is when things really went moving. So I'm 43 now, so early 30s. And because a couple, I, I got a couple opportunities, and I pissed away a couple opportunities also, I'm sure, from being just drunk and just not having good sets, even if they weren't bad sets. They weren't great because I was, I kept thinking like, oh, just one more will get me to the spot where I'm loose. And then I was too loose or I forgot shit. And in my 30s, finally, maybe the maturity caught up with me a little bit and I got my shit together and then I didn't squander opportunities. In my 20s, if I had gotten opportunities, I would have fucked them up. I'm pretty certain of that. So maybe it all worked out the way it was supposed to, you know. And now you're, you're semi-retired. I don't know how seriously to take that. <laughs> Neither do I. I think it's fun to say because nobody knows what it means. It's almost like a way of getting people on Twitter off of your case to just be like, well, it's, I'm semi-retired. None of this matters. Yeah. I just, well, I kept thinking like, I, you know, the whole goal, people, I mean, especially I knew people like in high school that were already making plans for retirement. Like, well, no, I'm just going to go to college and that's where I'm going to meet my wife. I'm going to get this job and I'm going to have these kids. And then when I'm 60, I'm like, what do you mean when you're sick? Who gets, we don't all get to that point. And that's not to say like you should Those not people sound those miserable, things. by the way. I don't know if they were friends of yours, but they sound absolutely miserable. Well, I feel sorry for some of them now because they were people that were just, you know, go slow, steady as she goes. And now everybody's getting fucked by COVID. People that had, well, it's not a great job, but it's reliable. And I don't want to rock the boat at work. So I'm just going to make this much and save this little bit every year. And now they might lose those jobs and they're screwed. And I feel very bad for those people. I just, I, the idiot who somehow lucked out. I mean, I won't discredit myself from like, okay, I'm not bad at stand up, but there's people that people that don't know about comedy. There is a world of exceptional stand up comedy out there that does not get the exposure. With stand-up, a lot of the case, what's popular isn't necessarily what's good, but it's what's popular. It's it, for the people that just want to hear like, oh, man, uh, you know, when your wife does this, okay, that's fine. People just want to laugh at it and go home and not worry about it. But there is just, just, I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I, I don't even have a measurement of how many depths, eons, gallons. You know what I'm saying? I, I work with words, right? And uh, so... Uh, there's just so much. I, I got lucky. I'm the guy who won a $10 lottery ticket, scratch off ticket, and got 10 more scratch offs and got $100 and then bought 100 scratch off tickets and got a million dollars. That's that's who I am. I got lucky out of the sea of comedians. When I say I'm semi-retired, it's because every comedian, to some extent, if you don't financially bury yourself with stupid purchases because you're like, I'm going to be famous forever or whatever. You're semi-retired. You work when you want. And the thing you do for work is the thing you were going to do anyway. If you're a true stand-up, I was going to do this shit for free. If I was still working at a warehouse, I'd probably still be doing this shit every Monday and Thursday at a bar in Chicago because that's where my friends are. And it'd be like my bowling league or something. Maybe the deeper question is like, does being semi-retired actually represent a shift in your life or a shift in your comedy or, you know, the amount of touring you're doing, or is that just a way of kind of reframing what you do for a living? I think it's more reframing, but I mean, saying that out loud made me look at what my priorities were. Like 
my buddy Monty, one of the guys that got me into stand-up comedy, Monty, goes by one name, so I'm not leaving his last name off for any reason. He, he uh, he's always like he's like compare and despair. If you compare yourself, you wind up in despair. And I think I was always like in the mode of, excuse me. Oh, somebody got so and so got that job. How come so and so is selling out these theaters? And and like I forgot to look at what I already got. Do you already make a living doing comedy, and a living where you don't owe money? You're not in debt. You don't owe the bank everything. You don't owe credit card debt or student loans, and you can save some because of jokes. Shut your mouth. You're fine. And. Do you also not have to work every weekend? I, I certainly don't. I'm not s- sweating this whole COVID thing because any money past what I need to live and my few uh, luxuries I enjoy, I look at it like stolen money. So I got it for telling jokes. So I keep it tucked away because who knows how long I'm going to be able to do it. I think it. I think it was a way of telling myself like, hey man, you got to the finish line that people were talking about in high school. Like, well, when I retire, like, you got that now. You can go camping whenever you want. Go take a vacation whenever you want. Go take a bike ride in the middle of the day. I think I moved to Los Angeles in 2003, and one of I always had day jobs when I was there. I was I never did like I wasn't a like on wait staff or anything. I was always like nine to five guy because that was my experience. It was like warehouses and shit. But on the rare occasion that I had to like was homesick for the day or something. And I'd go by cafes or bars with an outside area and I'd see people just having a drink or having like just kicking back at one o'clock in the afternoon. I was like, how do you get to be that? That was my, that, that was the idea of success was somebody on a Wednesday afternoon and be like, I guess I'm just going to go take a walk. I'm just going to hang out in the middle of the day. Now they could have been, working nights so they could but in my head I'm like you did the thing you made it you can just now I got to that point I'm semi-retired what had to happen for you to feel comfortable being at that point for you to feel comfortable quitting the warehouse I had I was still doing I was working at the my last job in LA that actually Matt Bronger got me closed captioning television that was where both of our last day jobs we had was to do closed captioning for tv shows you would listen and transcribe the audio yeah, we did it off video. The people that were, uh, the people that did like live broadcast news and everything, they were like Top Gun pilots. They'd come in with like just a giant big gulp cup and hide in a, like a windowless room for hours and just come, just come out with their hair matted down. Just like air traffic controllers, basically. Yeah, yeah but very much so, very yeah. much so. And so we were just, uh, but that was, yeah, that was the job that we both had. And I had an agent where I told him, I'm like, listen, if I quit this job, because I eventually had to start taking time off of my day job to do comedy. I was so scared of quitting a regular income job, no matter how menial or low paying it was, because I knew I know how to budget myself and live off whatever amount of money a week I had. And so when I was, I was like getting all these where I'm like, all right, I'm quitting my job this day. I need you to start booking me anywhere. Like I just want whatever work you can get me as soon as that's over. And so that he's like, all right, I got you. And then quit the day job and immediately was on the road and doing some horrible kick. You're going back on the road. You- we'll see. Since America doesn't 
thinks this is a democratic conspiracy because God forbid we look at the rest of the fucking earth and see how this is being handled. But, uh, you know, these permanent spring breakers got to go out there and fucking have a Lake Havasu party and fuck everything up for everybody. That's why I ask, like, not, not for the, not, not for like the plug, the plug or anything. Cause you know, I, I'm not entirely sure when this is going to go up but from the standpoint of your mental readiness to be able to do that. I mean, I assume, you know, if somebody asks you to do a show tomorrow in wherever inside, you'd be comfortable doing that. No, no, I don't want to do any indoor show. I mean, I've, I've been curious to uh, go see a show. I mean, I'm up, I'm outside of Portland. I know the Helium Comedy Club in Portland is having like one third capacity shows. Yeah. And I'd like to pop my head in there just to see how it's, how it's going. But again, I'm in no rush, semi-retired, got my cushion. And I don't want, I also don't want to take shows that I've rescheduled and then have those people that bought tickets be in a position to either lose money or have to go to a show where they don't feel comfortable doing it. I would hope that people that like my comedy and my sensibilities and I guess fans more or less, like I kind of don't dislike using that word because it seems like it puts me and them in separate categories, but I would hope they would be, if I was like, I'm doing this show in here, I hope they'd be like, well, go fuck yourself, Kyle. Cause we're not going like, I would hope that that would be their mentality. Uh, I think these first shows out of the gate, I got, you know, it's, I'm going to obviously going to have to warm up somehow. I've only done a few zoom shows. They're not ideal, but they're better than nothing. And so I'd probably start doing some more of those just to get the chops back up. But that I have not been thinking about, which is probably something I should be doing is thinking about. So I think I appreciate you bringing it up. I know you're not like the, you know, an observational comic sense of like, Hey, what, you know, like what's in the news today, but specifically with those Zoom shows and as you're thinking of eventually doing shows again, what, what's your sense of how you deal with this? I mean, obviously, you know, you've been dealing with doing comedy in, in you know, the era of Trump in the US, but like, this is like, this is some next level shit we're dealing with right now. It's, I don't know of any joke that I ha- would have about it that is, when, when you have something that is, you know, on everybody's mind, that means everybody's talking about it and a lot of people comedians late night talk show hosts the writers for those late night talk show hosts are all writing jokes about it and doing a good job at it so i don't know unless i think my perspective is something rather unique or uh specific to my experience i don't know how much i'm going to add to it other than a you know a scrambled version of a, a joke or a take that everybody else has already heard by going online and watching tv I think we're going to be in some weird black mirror version where I'm, I've seen people doing shows where it's you're doing a show, two people on, you know, a crowd of a hundred people in zoom and they all have their mics on. So you can hear the laughter. And I think that might be one way to navigate this. Like I said, not ideal. I'm, I'm in my spot right now. How am I supposed to take it seriously when I'm sitting in my own house with my own shit around me? I need that weird nervous energy of like, all right, here's a stage and lights and, this isn't my house and it's not your house. So let's all have a brand new experience together. Again, that goes into the theater acting thing where like, even if I'm in my own house, quick, pretend you're in a comedy club. Oh, hey, great to be here, everybody. Get along, there's your emergency exit over there. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have that skill. The acting example is a good one because, you know, you can go to a play 
during a pandemic or war or whatever, it's everybody on stage's job to pretend like it's, you know, like Victorian England or something. But this is different, right? I mean, is, is there a sense that like, you have to address it from the standpoint of being like, hey, this is some fucking weird shit. Let, let me tell you some jokes now. I mean, but who doesn't know that? Who's going to be like, wait, what? Wait, hold on. Uh, you know, an audience of uh, recently revived coma patients that you exiles have to explain what's happening. No, I think like, hey, I, I think what maybe what some people would appreciate is the idea of normalcy. But again, even talking about that, like how might just go on, go online every day and see like, well, this is how we're bringing a touch of normal, a touch of normalcy returns, a little bit of normalcy, some regularity, like even addressing the normalcy is like, no, what if you just jump right in? Wow. Thanks everybody for being here. This is going to be great. And here we go. And then just give it a shot. You know, uh, we'll see. I'm sure I'll be doing them soon. So what's it like releasing a comedy album when you can't get on the road and everything else? How do you how do you deal with it? I mean, I I recorded it back in March of 2019. So it's been sitting around for a while, like before we got everything lined up the way we wanted it to to come out. It's nice to be able to put it out and then tour. Some of the some of what's nice is that it as long as it already took to release and then when I do get to go out if you listen to the album the live show will be entirely different whereas if you record something and then it comes out in three months and you're going to go on the road you're still doing a lot of that material some uh some comedy fans like to see bits they know personally I feel weird if I you can tell that an audience has heard the it's like when you're talking to somebody you start telling the story they're too polite to tell you they heard the story or I think It'll for me. I'll be like, oh yeah, here's a brand new hour. Hopefully, it's as good as what matched. It's. I would have liked to be able to capitalize on, some of the press and all the stuff coming out about it. But I also think like it's an hour and forty minutes long. Things are shitty. Here's here's this, and there's no reference of what's going on since because it was recorded before this. So it's an hour and forty minutes of not being reminded that there's a pandemic global shutdown. And it, with that, with it something that long, even if you don't like me, you gotta laugh at one thing. Like that.